Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dr. Harlan Betts, and I'm delighted to welcome you to Wisdom from Above, where we go beyond the reasoning of man to the revelation of God. We have finally come to the climactic chapters of the book of Revelation. The central focus of this book has always been on Jesus, and the great anticipation of this book has always been the second coming of Christ. This anticipation of his second coming is not unique to the book of Revelation. It's actually a focus of the entire Bible. There are 1,845 references to the second coming in the Old Testament. There are 318 references to the second coming in the New Testament. That's a total of 2,163 references to the second coming in the Bible. That's one of every 30 verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament refer to the second coming. It's obviously a critical and highly anticipated event. For every prophecy on the first coming, there are eight prophecies on the second coming. The second coming of Christ is a highly emphasized and eagerly anticipated event. It is the culmination of the book of Revelation and the climax of prophetic history. We've been looking at the book of Revelation, which we've noted over and over, has three major parts. First, the past. The vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Second is the present, the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 through 3. And third is the prophetic section in chapters 4 through 22. It covers, the prophetic section covers the tribulation with the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. The tribulation concludes with the second coming of Christ, which we're going to see today in Revelation chapter 19. Then, Lord willing, next week, the millennial kingdom, Revelation chapter 20. And then, the new heaven and new earth, Revelation chapters 21 to 22. But today's passage is the thrilling revelation of the second coming of Christ as recorded in Revelation chapter 19. We see, first of all, the praise of the great multitude in 1 through 3. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to the Lord our God. For true are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. This passage is the, the source of Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. The Hallelujah Chorus is a magnificent and passionate praise of the Lord. The term hallelujah is a Hebrew word that means 
praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The term hallelujah is found only in this chapter in all of the New Testament. The Hebrew word hallelujah is translated into the Greek as hallelujah and into English as hallelujah. Here in this prophetic passage, the Old Testament and New Testament and tribulation saints are praising the Lord because his judgments are true and righteous. They praise him for his salvation. God has delivered them from Satan and sin and suffering. They praise him for glory, his glory. God is magnificent and majestic and matchless. They praise him for his honor because God is precious and he is worthy of highest esteem. They praise him for his power because God is almighty. His power has just been revealed in his victory over sin and Satan and the Antichrist. They praise him because evil's complete and eternal judgment is assured by the smoke that rises from her judgment. This is most likely the smoke of Hades and the lake of fire. The smoke pictures the judgment for those who followed the scarlet harlot, this false one-world religion. And then in verse 4, we see the praise of the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah. You remember that the 24 elders are probably the 12 patriarchs of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church. The four living creatures are angels reflecting Christ with the head of a lion, head of a calf, head of a man, head of an eagle. The lion picturing Christ as king, the calf picturing Christ as servant, the man picturing Christ as man, and the eagle picturing Christ as God. And there are four kinds of angels serving God, the cherubim, the seraphim, the guardian, and the ministering. They say amen and hallelujah. Amen, like hallelujah, is a Hebrew term that's transliterated into both Greek and English. When amen is declared by God, it means it is so, or it is true, or it is established, or it shall be. When amen is pronounced by man, it means, well, so let it be, or so may it be. So God says, thus shall it be, and man says in response, so let it be. So here the 24 elders and the four living creatures are saying, Amen, Hallelujah. So let it be, praise the Lord. Then in verses 5 and 6, we see the praise of all God's bondservants. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude 
as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God omnipotent reigns. This again reminds me of the Hallelujah Chorus. As they say, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. There's a call to worship. Praise our God. Praise the only true God. Praise the creator of the world. Praise the Lord of the universe. Praise the Savior of mankind. You, his bondservants. That means those who have willingly trusted in Christ and willingly followed him. And it says, and those who fear him, a reverence to those who have shown a reverential respect for God, recognizing and honoring him as the only true God. And then it refers to both small and great. And this emphasizes the fact that no believer is left out, regardless of age, gender, color, class, or status. We see the expression of worship. First of all, it's a great multitude. That's their sum. And then their sound, they're like many waters, like the mighty thunder. And they're saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. I think I mentioned earlier in an earlier podcast that on March 23, 1743, when Handel's Messiah was first performed in London, the king was present. It is reported that all were so deeply moved by the Hallelujah Chorus that when the words for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth were sung, the king and the entire audience sprang to their feet and remained standing throughout the entire chorus. From that time on, it has remained the custom to stand during the Hallelujah Chorus. The next thing we see in Revelation 19 is the prepared bride of Christ in verses 7 to 10. First of all, the call to rejoice in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So he tells us both what and why here. What? Rejoice. Be glad. Give glory to God. Why? Because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. Well, we know throughout the New Testament that the church is the bride of Christ. And the church is made up of all those who have placed their faith in Jesus at the time of Pentecost through the rapture, we have the local church here on earth. And the bride saw the bridegroom ascend to heaven. But one day the bridegroom will come back and take the church to be with her, with with him. Notice here the clothing of the bride in verse 8. And to her, to the bride, to the church, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, 
For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Fine linen, bright linen, clean linen. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now we need to stop right here and note a critical distinction. The bride is the bride because of the righteousness of Christ. The bride is clothed in white because of her own righteous character and conduct. So there's the inner garment, the Lord's righteousness, which has been placed on our account. This is an imputed righteousness. That is, it's not our own, it's Christ's righteousness that's been imputed to us. It's been placed on our account. We kind of saw that even in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Or as we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He who knew no sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus hung on that cross, God looked at him and saw our sins taken into Jesus' body, and he received our punishment, the punishment we deserve for our sins. And then, because we've trusted in him, God looks at us and sees Christ's righteousness placed on our life. So the inner garment is the Lord's righteousness placed on our account. The outer garment is the believer's righteous acts. As we're told in 1 John, we're to abide in Christ so that when he appears, we can be like him. And whoever has that hope purifies himself even as Christ is pure. This is a practical righteousness. And these righteous acts are empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit. So as believers, we must yield to the Holy Spirit and submit to the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to work through us and to control us rather than to be controlled by sin. And then we can have this bright, clean, fine linen an outer garment of our righteousness. Then there's a command of John in verses 9 and 10 to write and to worship God. First of all, write. He said to me, write. Blessed are those who are called to the married supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the married supper of the Lamb. Just to give you a little background, there are three main stages of a Jewish wedding. First, the marriage contract. This is a betrothal period. And this is this begins with the redemption of the church by God. As Jesus died for us and we place our faith in him. So that begins the betrothal. Second is the marriage ceremony. This involves the claiming and the taking. And the marriage ceremony will really be when he claims us at the rapture of the church and brings us to heaven. Third is the marriage supper, or the marriage feast. And this will take place at the return of Christ, when the church returns with Christ to the earth. The marriage supper of the Lamb is used in the Gospels with reference to the millennial reign of Christ. 
We see this in both Matthew 22 and Matthew 25. Not only is John commanded to write, he's commanded to worship God. In verse 10, John says, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. So this angel says, don't try to worship me. I'm just a servant of God like you are. Instead, he says, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So John is awestruck. And he falls at the feet of the angel who is revealing this prophecy to him. And the angel says, in effect, don't worship me, worship God. Then the angel says, the testimony of Jesus is the testimony of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is not simply to open a window to the future. The purpose of prophecy is to bear witness to Jesus. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a revelation of the person of Christ in chapter 1, the possession of Christ in chapters 2 and 3, and the program of Christ in chapters 5 through 22. It brings human history to a climax when the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. At this point, God reveals the second coming of Christ to John. This is the climax of the book of Revelation. Everything preceding this is in some sense just introductory. Everything following this is in essence, is in a sense, just an epilogue. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, are the high point of all history. Because of Revelation 19, verses 11 21, are about the powerful return of Christ. We read, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. So here, finally, we see the second coming of Christ. And in his appearance, he he is on a white horse, the white horse of a victorious conqueror. And he judges and wages war, and his name is Faithful and True, assuring absolute justice. Then it describes his eyes like a flame of fire. In his omniscience, he is the righteous judge. He sees every thought, every intent, every motive. He sees the heart of every person. On his head are many crowns because he's omnipotent. The sovereign authority. And his name, known only to himself, indicating the unique mystery. That he is the unique God the Son, who became the unique God-man, who's coming back as the unique God-Messiah. His clothes 
a robe dipped in blood. The day of the blood of God's redemption is past. This is the day of the blood of God's vengeance. This is clearly revealed by Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet has shown a revelation of the coming Christ. He's standing in Jerusalem. He's looking south towards Edom. And he sees the approaching warrior Messiah. And there's a dialogue between the old prophet Isaiah and the coming king. That's in Isaiah 63. But his name is the Word of God, personifying perfect revelation. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ was in the beginning with God, and Jesus Christ was God, and Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son of God. And notice the armies in verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So his bride, Jesus' bride, the church, clothed in white linen, follow him on white horses. And then we see the awesome judgment that takes place as Christ returns in the final battle of Armageddon. And this takes place at the end of the great seven-year tribulation, a time of biological holocaust, chemical apocalypses, seismic disturbances. There are three major series of judgments, the seal, trumpet, and bowl, each more destructive than the one before. After the first series of two, uh, after the first two series of judgments, over half the population of this planet will have died. The warnings of God have been very clear. Then there's a third series of judgments, right near the end of tribulation. And the scripture says, unless these days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. The Bible says that in spite of these deadly judgments, most of the rest who were not killed by the plagues, they did not repent. They did not repent of their idolatries. They did not repent of their murders. They did not repent of their sorceries. They did not repent of their immorality. They did not repent of their thefts. They refused to repent of their evil ways. They simply shook their fists at God. Billy Graham tells the following story. I know of a wealthy family whose oldest son was exposed to the drug culture during his senior year of high school. At a party, the boy snorted lines of cocaine with his rich friends. The father found out and confronted his son, carefully explained the risks of drug use, especially cocaine. And they talked about the stories of lives ruined by drug habits, begun at similar high school parties. But the teenager laughed at his father's old-fashioned ideas. So, hoping to prevent his son from further experiments with cocaine, the father threatened the boy with a day of judgment. If you try it again, he warned, you'll be grounded and your car will be parked in the garage. Still the boy disobeyed. 
The father discovered his son's disobedience and called the day of judgment. The son was grounded. His car was taken from him. All this was motivated by a desire to help the son, to save him from the horror of drug addiction and all of the destructive things that come with it. But nothing worked. The son continued using cocaine. Knowing the son's growing addiction, his parents refused to supply funds that might be used to maintain the habit. Instead, they worked and prayed and phoned. They poured out their love to their son. They begged him to come home for treatment. They offered to pay all the expenses for a drug rehab program in a local hospital. But the son ridiculed their fears and ignored their warnings. He began to steal to pay for the expensive drugs. Then, one Saturday night, when he was attempting to rob an all-night liquor store, he was shot and killed. That young man brought judgment upon himself. His parents threatened judgment not to condemn him, but to save him. The son's disobedience frustrated the purpose of the father and brought even worse judgment on himself. Death came not because of the father, but through the son's disobedience. In a similar manner, God has repeatedly warned people of a coming day of judgment. He's offered a way of escape through repentance and faith in his son. And now, in the book of Revelation, the scripture says there will be a day of judgment. There will be a worldwide assembly for war to end all wars. People will think this is the end of civilization, the end of the world, but they're mistaken. It's not really the end of the world. It's just the end of any continued opportunity for them to repent and to turn to Jesus as their Savior. They are ruined by their own refusal. They are doomed by their own decision. Their decision to cut God out of their life is cemented for eternity. We read about the conqueror in verses 15 and 16. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His name indicates his sovereign power. King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The sword in his mouth to strike, the rod of iron to rule, the winepress of wrath to tread them down. And notice the cry in verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sat on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. This is the cry to the buzzards and vultures come, assemble for the great supper of God. There, these are the divinely designed cleanup crew. Then in our last three verses, we see the condemned. And I saw the beast 
and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So the Antichrist and the kings of the earth and the army, their armies are gathered to battle against Christ and his church at the battle of Armageddon. Then the beast is captured and with him the false prophet who works signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two, the Antichrist and the false prophet, are cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So the kings of the earth unite with the Antichrist to launch an assault on the coming warrior Messiah. But they lose that battle. The Antichrist and the false prophet are captured, seized, and thrown, not just thrown into the lake of fire, thrown alive into the lake of fire. This is an eternal, conscious torment of punishment. All of the other Christ-rejecting unbelievers are executed by Christ, not by weapons of mass destruction, but rather by the word of God alone. And the bodies of the unsaved dead are devoured by the vultures. So, in this passage, we've seen the glorious and exciting and highly anticipated return of Christ. Some lessons. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This is a call to John, but it's a call to us. What was their reason for praise? Because they have the glorious privilege of being the bride of Christ, loved and cherished by the very Son of God. We will have the privilege of seeing our bridegroom face to face. We will have the privilege of enjoying personal intimacy and everlasting fellowship with him. We will have the privilege of coming back with him at the second coming when he comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Samuel Rutherford writes this, The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he gives, but on his pierced hands. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. So we should be praising the Lord. Second, we should be getting ready for the wedding. 1 John 2, 28-3-3 says that we should be abiding in Christ and we should be purifying ourselves even as He is pure. As one of the songwriters put it, Oh, to be worthy to walk with Him in white. Oh, I understand every believer has been given Christ's righteousness as an inner garment. But have you through your walk with Him and through the power of the Spirit, conducted yourself righteously. We must respond with love. We must accept His grace. We must obey the Word. And the third and final lesson, worship God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Jesus is the only hope for this world. Jesus is your only hope. So don't be deceived. 
The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God in Jesus Christ is eternal life. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Not Satan, not Tao, not Brahman, not Buddha, not Mahavira, not Ahura, not Mazda, not nature gods, not nature, not Allah, not Mary, not Mother Earth, not your good works, not yourself. You must trust in Christ and in Him alone. Jesus Christ, the unique God-man, came to a little Jewish town 2,000 years ago. He lived a sinless life, and He died on the cross to pay for my sins and your sins. Have you trusted in Him? Have you accepted His payment? God so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son that if you would believe in Him, you would not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus Christ, the unique warrior Messiah, is coming back to earth to rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Will you be there with him? Or will you be among those who are surrounded by smoke and experiencing eternal conscious torment for rejecting Christ? You see, those who reject God's gift will receive God's wrath. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the focal point of the future and the highest hope of history. What have you done with Jesus? What will he do with you? He is my savior. He is my bridegroom. He is my coming king. I will reign with him throughout eternity. And so can you. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of Wisdom from Above. This exciting episode about the second coming of Christ. I'm honored that you are part of my listening family. I want to ask you to please share this podcast with your family. Share this podcast with your friends. Let them know about wisdom from above. I look forward to meeting with you next week when we will discover many facts about the future millennial kingdom where Jesus Christ will rule and reign. This is Dr. Harlan Betts, wishing you a great week and God's blessings. Thank you for joining me in this passionate quest for wisdom from above.